I'm Costas Canaris. I'm a picky consultant in the UK. Um, and today I'm going to talk to you about post-resuscitation care. Um, my, I think the APLS caveat is the APL, I feel the APLS is a fantastic course to get us to do the basics right, but it doesn't go far enough into telling us what to do once we've got return of spontaneous circulation and um, uh, and this uh, half an hour talk uh, is meant to go through the basics with you. So at least you know how to try and prevent secondary brain injury in children where we get uh, return of spontaneous circulation. So as ever, I'm going to uh, use a, a, a case and it's going to be interactive. So please get your uh, voting fingers in. So this is Lucy. Lucy is seven years old and she is fit and well apart from having a, a very well controlled type one diabetes uh, that was diagnosed when she was three. Uh, she loves balloons and her absolutely favorite um, cartoon is up for obvious reasons. Unfortunately, um, after a uh, very brief 12-hour uh, period of malaise where she had gone off her food, her blood sugars at a time were well controlled. Um, um, she was found unresponsive in bed. There was no real prodrome to this and um, when her and she was not febrile. So when she was found in bed, she was pulseless. Uh, paramedics were called and were there very quickly, and she was found to be in asystole. After 20 minutes of CPR, they got return of spontaneous circulations, um, uh, but they didn't intubate at the scene. Uh, they managed to uh, put an LMA in, and they bagged her all the way to the hospital, which was nearby. So this is the gas on arrival. Uh, please screenshot this uh, or write it down. Uh, it clearly shows severe mixed acidosis, but with a number of uh, concerning electrolyte imbalances as well, just for good measure. So either write it down or screenshot it. I'll give you a second to do that. So she's arrived in RED. She's uh, got a pulse. Uh, can't really get a good blood pressure on her, but her heart rate is about 100. GCS is 3. She's got poor perfusion peripherally, and she's afebrile. So we need to intubate her. What do you think we should do? So I'll give you about 30 seconds to uh, come up with an answer. Remember, she's arrested. She's flat out. Does she need drugs? Does she not? So much uh, alongside the theme of the day, we have a preponderance towards fentanyl, ketamine, and rock. Unfortunately, somewhere between a fifth and a quarter of people uh, have been saying she doesn't need any drugs. And this is unfortunately common practice, especially during an arrest situation. Um, it's unethical to use paralysis on the intubation, even in an arrest situation. Uh, it's still done, uh, and there's been a number of um, papers that uh, uh, to highlight current practice, especially in emergency departments, and it's, uh, it does happen, especially in the pre-hospital setting. Uh, paralysis on the intubation is a significant patient risk. Not only are the patients more likely to extubate themselves, uh, but they're also at significant um, long-standing PTSD if they do survive. It doesn't take long to draw, you know, one milligram per kilo of ketamine or one mic per kilo of fentanyl or a bit of both 
to give it even less. And remember, you don't need much in the way of anesthetic agents to minimize this harmful effect because shock in itself is its own anesthetic. Um, so you don't really need to give very much. So you need to give both paralytic to relax the cords and um, a bit of sedation. Uh, now, some people have said we can use sucks. Sucks, if you remember, the potass potassium was quite high. It was 6.2, 6.3 on the gas. So in this context, I would avoid succinamethonium um, like anything, because we don't want to cause a hyperkalemic surge, um, which would then cause possibly a VF arrest on top. Probofolicoly can vasodilate. So in the context of a child with no blood pressure or just arrested, I would steer well clear and use the least cardio unstable cocktail that we have, which is a bit of ketamine, a bit of fentanyl uh, and some rocuronium. Sucks historically has been used because of the rapid onset of paralysis. You can offset that and give equally fast onset of paralysis if you just double your rocuronium dose to two milligrams per kilo. Now, on to the next question. So blood pressure-wise, remember, Lucy's seven. What should we be targeting in terms of her blood pressure? Okay, most people going for 90. Now, this is a contentious point, not because of what we are trying to do, but because the the blood pressure targets we have uh, are derived from healthy children, so not critically ill children. Now, there's a study that's ongoing now in the UK, a well-conducted RCT called the Pressure Trial, which is going to shed some light into what the appropriate blood pressure targets are for critically unwell children. But in the context of what the best evidence we have at the moment, uh, a blood pressure target for children with non-traumatic, and this is important, non-traumatic cardiac arrest is a high normal BP. So for her age group, uh, a BP would be normal up to 120 systolic. So a high normal would be about 110. So the best target for her would be be about 110. Now, if she had been run over by a car and then arrested, then it would take us into the realms of non-traumatic. Then you're trying to minimize and balance how much she's going to bleed in, into her brain and how much perfusion her brain is taking. Then you aim for a low normal BP. So then the answer would be 90 milligrams uh, of mercury as you have put down. Now, remember, monitoring of blood pressure is an invasive skill. It needs you need an arterial line, ideally, but if the child's very young and it's out with the skill set of the DGH until the critical care team arrives, you need to put a cuff tube, um, so, um, a cuff on the arm, ideally, uh, on one to two minute cycles. There's almost always myocardial studying with poor cardio cardiac function. Uh, so we will need a combination of fluids, inotropes and pressors to maintain the blood pressure. If you need inotropy, you use more adrenaline. If you need more pressors, you need uh, some noradrenaline. Um, also remember, if your pH is less than seven, your inotropes are not going to work uh, as well. And your potassium is likely to be high because potassium uh, uh, moves into the extracellular space in the context of acidosis. In both those situations, bicarbonate is indicated not only to balance the pH and help the inotropes work, but also to shift the high potassium back into their rightful space. So what should Lucy's target saturations be? We seem to have a 94% preponderance. Only 1% gave the right answer, which is 88 to 92%. So well done to the 1% has, has said that. So hypoxia is obviously harmful, okay? We need oxygen 
for the brain. But hyperoxia is also extremely harmful. There are multiple RCTs that show decreased survival, which is postulated to be due to increased free radical formation, which then exacerbates localized tissue injury. There's been a big study recently in the UK, albeit not focusing on children that have arrested, but more in general PSU patients, uh, called the OxyPiki trial, um, that shows that a correct target of 88 to 92% oxygenation confers better outcomes amongst invasively ventilated emergency admissions to PICU that receive supplemental oxygen. And what they have found is that uh, a conservative oxygenation target, such as 88 to 92, reduces a composite death and duration of organ support for a month when compared to those which with more liberal approach to oxygenation. So we need to be aiming for 88 to 92, ideally. Certainly don't aim for 100%, as that is significantly detrimental and uh, affects outcomes. So what should Lucy's target PCO2 be? is the next question. So we're now intubated, we're oxygenating a target of 88 to 92. We now need to know what CO2 should be the target. Okay, so the 4.5 to 6 and 3.5 to 4.5 seem to be uh, winners. 4.5 to 6 is the clear winner. That is, I'm glad to say, the correct answer. So yeah, good CO2 control is vital. Um, too much CO2 is bad, too little CO2 is also bad. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain a bit of the physiology. So CO2 vasodilates. If you vasodilate, you drop your PP, your blood pressure, and therefore you drop your cerebral perfusion pressure. If you remember, uh, and if someone can type this in the uh, YouTube chat, CPP is equivalent to uh, MAP minus the ICP. Uh, or if we don't have an ICP bolt in, you can use a CVP as a proxy. So CPP equals MAP minus CVP if you don't have an ICP bolt in. Um, there is some evidence that higher CO2 um, you, can be used as an, to have antioxidant effects and to have anti-inflammatory properties. Uh, and lack, lack of CO2 does the opposite. So lack of CO2, so low CO2 causes vasoconstriction, uh, but it's also uh, linked to high, uh, hyperventilation, which comes with hypoxia. And that can also worsen right ventricular function. Now, whilst hyperventilation is good when you have acute ICP spike. So if the child's behaving like it's about to cone, for example, having the Cushing's triad, which is abnormal breathing, hypertension, and bradycardia, blowing off the CO2 is a very good way to try and offset the ICP and bring it down. But there's high quality evidence that prolonged low CO2 and prolonged hyperventilation worsens the prognosis. So what we need is a sweet spot. So 4.5 to 6 is generally what is accepted to be the sweet spot for these patients. No less than that and no more than that. So the next question, broadly speaking, is where do you think we should be doing a central line in this child? Okay, so this is not a trick question um, uh, and it does matter. So a fifth or you said it doesn't matter, but it does. Uh, generally try and avoid the neck. If you put in the neck, that essentially works as a tourniquet. So it impedes cerebral venous drainage so that would if you don't have any other choice fine but ideally it should be your last choice uh, equally for practical reasons rather than for physiological reasons i would try and avoid the subclavian uh, because you need the chest in case the child arrests again so you needed to do cpr and you needed to attach the pads too so 
For me, the first place I would go ideally would be uh, away from the waist up and trying for the femorals. Okay, so either of the femoral veins is the correct answer. So what position is thought to minimize secondary brain injury in patients like Lucy? Good, excellent. So 90% of you said 30 degree angle. So this is the widely accepted position uh, that is thought to uh, uh, optimize the balance between cerebral arterial perfusion and cerebral venous drainage. The evidence base, I have to say, is not the most convincing, but the physiology behind it makes sense, which is what most of us tend to do. So what temperature do you want to maintain Lucy at? So it's a even split-ish between 36 to 37.5 to 35 to 36. Now, this has been a bone of contention amongst the intensivists and emergency physicians for quite some time. And targeted therapeutic hypothermia comes into vogue and out of vogue, depending uh, on what the latest big trial uh, says. But essentially, at this point in time, targeted therapeutic hypothermia seems to worsen the prognosis in children following cardiac arrest. Their physiology is different to children that have birth asphyxia at birth where that are eligible for cooling. Um, extremes of temperature, uh, essentially of low temperature, worsen uh, mortality because of an increased risk of arrhythmia, increased risk of coagulopathy, and worsening immunosuppression with all the uh, subsequent infections that the children get if you do keep them at a lower temperature. Um, there's strong evidence to suggest that fever is terribly detrimental to secondary brain injury. Uh, and some papers suggest that for every one degree temperature rise, uh, we allow the child to go to above 37.5. So if the 38.5, for example, we increase the incidence of severe adverse outcomes by 220%. So you really need to, to be proactive with this secondary effect of fever that we seem to uh, get with children as a SERS reaction and load them with paracetamol if you have to strip them and use cooling blankets if, if possible. So tight or um temperature control, not too cool, but certainly not febrile. Okay, so the next question is, do we need an anticonvulsant? Remember, she didn't come in with seizures. We don't know if she's had a seizure. She has arrested, however, uh, and we have intubated her, so she will have morphine, midazolam, and boluses of paralytic in the background to keep her going. So... Do we need to do anything more? Okay, so nearly four-fifths said, no, the midazolam is enough. And I think this will be a discussion point if we have time with the faculty later. But um, nearly 50%, so up to 47% of children following cardiac arrest will have seizures. Most of those are subclinical. Many of those are difficult to control. Like Peter said earlier, if you paralyze a child, then many of these children will get atropine, so the pupils stop being reactive for a brief period of time. You cannot monitor them for seizures until they get to PRCU, where you can put a CFM on or do a formal EEG. Um, routinely, I give Keppra 40 milligrams per kilo to the children. I try and avoid phenytoin because it's arrhythmogenic, and the last thing you want to be doing to a stunned myocardium is giving agents that can give them an arrhythmia. Kepra is safe, it's less arrhythm arrhythmogenic, and following the recent couple of years ago eclipse and concert trials, 
it has been shown to be just as effective of phenytoin, just with less of the side effects. So routinely, I feel it's good practice to load the children with Keppra in case they're having seizures and nearly wanting to have, and it's a safe drug, so why not give it? So that's my approach to it. Uh, I'm sure it'll be up for discussion. Final question. So Lucy's blood sugar was 18 on the gas. She has had a cardiac arrest. Should we control the blood sugar or is it just a normal stress response? Okay, so about three quarters said, yes, we need to uh, treat it. Now, um, this is a trick question. Being hyperglycemic following an arrest is a normal stress reaction. In the overwhelming majority of cases, we do not need to do anything about the blood sugar. The only exception is children with diabetes. The only evidence to suggest that aggressive managing, management of hyperglycemia confers any benefit to the outcomes is in diabetic patients. So do not routinely treat hyperglycemia in any other patients following a cardiac arrest. On the other, other side, hypoglycemia is what we need to be worrying about because that, uh, as we know, glucose is the substrate of the brain. Without it, brain cells die. Uh, sugar is brain fuel, so that needs aggressive management, especially in the younger population. So well done to uh, the majority of you for said, yes, it's high, but do not routinely treat it unless you know the child has diabetes. So Lucy did well. Uh, she had a full neurological recovery and she became an aeronaut. Uh, she has taught us that in order to minimize secondary brain injury in the post-arrest phase, we must avoid hyperoxia or hypoxia. We must aim for eucapnia, so a CO2 between 4.5 and 6 kPa. Aim for a high normal BP in non-traumatic uh, uh, cardiac arrest, whereas if it's a traumatic one, we need to aim for a low normal. Avoid putting necklines in. Um, nurse them at a 30-degree angle. Try and avoid fever at all costs, and I do that aggressively. Load them with anticonvulsants, ideally Keppra, and try and avoid any hypoglycemic events. Uh, on the top left is a blog I wrote for the Don't Forget the Bubbles um, group. Uh, feel free to scan the QR code. It tells you what we discussed about today, albeit with some changes um, following new evidence has come alight. And bottom right are... Uh, all the references I have used to conjure up this talk. Any any comments from the rest of the panel? Look, Peter, you're not a Medazolam fan. Do you want to chat any more about that? I've seen that in the chat. Yeah, I'm not a Medazolam fan um, as a routine sedation agent for any patient other than a patient who's come in with um, refractory epilepsy. Um, reason being that it is a negative inotrope. And in my patient population, with a lot of them being post-op cardiac patients, with diastolic dysfunction, I don't want to give them a negative inotrope as a sedation element. So I would rather use dexmedetomidine or clonidine. They will have a relative, you know, potential for a relative bradycardia with that, but most of those patients have diastolic dysfunction, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. So I'm not personally a fan of midazolam out with a very specific context of seizures. Um, so I wouldn't be using it routinely, but not everybody's in agreement with that, and that's fine. I think you're Chris, talking yeah. about specialist treatment, Pete. To be honest, you look at any transport team's guidelines and midazolam and morphine are there as standard. I think there's safety in using the same drug um, for critically ill children until they get to PICU. And, and at the point of entry to PICU, I agree with you fully. 
uh, I would change that sedation to something that's not got as many um, systemic effects on the blood pressure. But in terms of the target audience uh, that are used to drawing up morphine and pretty quickly, um, yeah, I think I'm that's safe to start off with. Yeah, I'm not saying for them not to follow their local guidelines. I'm just are making the point that potentially those guidelines for many units are probably out of date and could be updated. And yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, I agree fully. I was just keen to make a couple of wee comments. Um, this was common things that I see done wrong in this. Um, one, I think, is not starting adrenaline immediately. You get Rosk. Um the bolus dose of adrenaline you've got the 10 mics per kilo is 100 hours of a standard adrenaline infusion given instantly. So quite often after that, that works for a little while after you get ROSC and then it works its way out of the system and that patient is at high risk of re-arresting. So you're often better starting your infusion and then you can safely work out later on once you've got your echo, can you actually stop it on a patient with a prolonged arrest? So it'd be a standard to start it even if your patient looks quite good immediately following ROSC because they still have lots of adrenaline in the system. Um, the other important thing relates to the temperature. Um, as we know, um, normothermia is as good as hypothermia, which we used to do previously. The one worry is be careful in the DGH about warming the patient up if you are actually move, you know, you're not in the, the place of the definitive care, because if you warm them up towards normothermia and then transport them, they can get pyrexic on transport. So just remember, there's no evidence that normothermia is better than hypothermia. And if your patient's a little bit cool, quite often you're safer to leave them there till they've got to the ICU rather than trying to warm them up to normothermia outside a place where you can actively control the temperature. 